Welcome back, Nod Pod. Thank you guys so much for joining me for part two of my interview with Matt. Ugh, if you're watching this on Spotify or YouTube, YouTube, you can see like the remnants of my fake tattoos. Did you guys see my costume that I posted? I was Tommy Lee and my boss and friend Jana was Pam Anderson. And dude, I was shocked how many people like didn't know when they saw us. I would have thought it was so obvious. She was wearing like the Baywatch bathing suit and I had like the mayhem tattoo and the short black wig and everybody at the studio was like, like I had to like walk them through it. So I don't know if we just did it too late. It wasn't timely anymore. Cause I feel like last year, so many people were Tommy Lee and Pam Anderson, right? But I was kind of like, cool, we'll do it this year when fewer people are doing it. So it'll be like a little bit more original. Anyways, after we told people what it was, everybody was like, oh, awesome. But it took a minute. But yeah, so I'm covered in these like fake tattoos. Skylar and I were at a meeting last night and at first I had my hair up. And then I was like, oh my God, people are gonna think I either got like horrible tattoos or I don't know. Anyways. So yes, there are remnants of tattoos on my wrist if you're watching this. Part two of Matt's interview. And you guys heard part one and the cliffhanger that that ended on. And now you get the rest of the story. What happened, what he chose to do with what he found in that safe. And you know, the journey of his life after that and what ends up with his sentencing. You know, he had three strikes and doing anything with that safe very possibly got him a life sentence, you know, and he ultimately ended up facing multiple life sentences. So second part of his story is when we talk a little bit more about Buddhism. And like I told you guys last week, I'm going to try to get him back on for an episode like just about Buddhism and the way that the principles align with recovery. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. So I hope you guys enjoy part two and I'll see you next week. So I called the guy over that I'd stolen the safe with and I said, well, I found this gun and I found this other knickknack stuff. And then I showed him the computer and I said, and I found this and I pointed at the images and he's like, whoa, I don't want anything. To, I don't want nothing to do with this. And like, oh my gosh, I don't want anything to do with it either. <laughs> I, I didn't ask to be, have anything to do with it, but here we are. And I'm going to find a way to turn him in. He said, no, 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 no. I don't want anything to do with this. And I said, if it ever comes back to me, I won't tell anybody who you are, but I'm going to turn these in. And he always will remain that guy. Yeah. Because to this day, I just kept my word. And I said, no one will ever know it was you. Does he know who you are in his story? Has he ever reached out to you? I got a letter from him when I was in prison. Okay. All right. Okay. I did get a letter from him when I was in prison. Okay. So... I did what I said I was going to do. I took the digital memory card. I wrote some sort of note that said something along the lines of, I stole this from this house. I don't want anything to do with it, but please remove this animal from the streets. And I put that in a change purse and I put it in an envelope. On the envelope, I wrote, please deliver to Los Gatos, Monte Serino Police Department. I uh, said something along the lines of graphic images. Don't look at them. Something just in case somebody got curious, like you don't want to look at these pictures. And then I took it to a house. I did a little bit of scoping. Someone that seemed like they'd be family people who would do something with it immediately. And I put it in their mailbox. Oh, shit. Okay. I okay. put it in their mailbox. And it turns out that they never got it because it was the mail lady the next day who opened the mailbox, saw it, and she delivered it to the police department. Okay. Whoa. So the mail and lady to, did deliver it. Yeah. The mail lady delivered it. Do you know, just because I'm curious, did she... You might not even know this part of the story. Did she drive it? Like, did she hand deliver it to a police officer and get all like kind of freaked? I mean, she must have been a little freaked out. Do you know what that actual method of transportation was? I don't. It doesn't super matter. I'm just kind of curious. Okay. No, I don't know how I got to the police department. Okay. 
other than the fact that I know she didn't mail it. I didn't put right. stamps on it. Right, right. <laughs> With an address, it was clearly a, I've given you evidence. Please take care of this. Is right. The, is the nature of the writing I put on the envelope. So okay. I don't know exactly how it got there. Other than the fact that it went directly from her to the police department, not okay. like from her to a boss, to a boss, to a this, to a that. I think it went okay. directly from her to the police department. Maybe she called them and they came and got it from her. Right, okay. Right there. Or she okay. drove it over. I don't know how. Okay. So what happens next for you? You had to have wondered if the guy was going to get arrested, right? So did they, because, so nobody ever tried to like, because they could have fingerprinted it, right? But nobody ever comes looking for you for this, right? Oh, well, I didn't allow there to be any fingerprinting on any. Oh, okay. You thought of all that. I thought of all that. Okay. All right. So you were wearing gloves. Yeah. I wore gloves even when I handled all, even, even though like, Fingerprint transfer and whatnot on an envelope would it be pretty slim. Uh, yeah. I didn't. I still wore gloves for the envelope for writing the note. Okay. I wrote it with my. I think. I think I wrote it on a computer so that it didn't have handwriting, like the stuff that okay. was in the note inside. All sorts of stuff. Okay. The anonymous note wasn't going to get traced back to me. The anonymous okay. uh, All right. tip wasn't going to get traced back to me. Okay. Because I've always wondered about that. I, I was like, well, maybe it was so long ago they were like less able to find people. Because I wonder that. I'm like, I wondered if they even tried to find who sent it or if they were just more focused on what happened. So you had to have wondered if they were going to find him, right? Did you start like checking the newspapers? Did you start, because there wasn't, we had internet, but it wasn't like what it is now, right? How did you start trying to figure out if they actually went after the guy? I actually just went and looked at the newspaper at the newspaper stands every day. My family at the time, because I was selling all this stuff that was stolen on eBay, they thought that I was buying like storage units at auction or that I was buying stuff from garage sales. And so I told my mother who lived in the same town that this happened to watch the newspaper because I had found something in one of my garage sale purchases that was questionable and that I had turned it into the police. And I asked her to just keep, keep an eye out. And so she did keep an eye out. She saw an article in the local newspaper before I did. And she called me and said, Hey, uh, it says there was an anonymous tip and they arrested this person for child molestation or something like that. And so I knew he, had, I knew he had gotten arrested a handful or so of days after I had turned those photos in. So they got from point A to point B as I wanted them to. Okay. Okay. And then and I then, just kept rocking. Yeah. And <laughs> you just, just kept rocking and rolling. <laughs> yeah. My life wasn't any different. Right. Right. I, okay. I was still addicted to getting high. I was still addicted to stealing. And so I just kept rocking. Must have been sometime in the beginning of April or end of March of 2005. One night I was pulled over, pulling into my driveway. One of the local, uh, the Monte Serino, Los Gatos Monte Serino Police Department pulled me over. It was the middle of the night. They had the lights on, you know, the whole thing. I asked them, can you please at least just turn the lights on? Like, why are you pulling me over? They're like, oh, we just want to take a look at what you got here. I'm like, so you're not pulling me over for anything specific? They're like, no, no, we're just here just to talk. And I'm like, well, can you turn your lights off? (laughs) The whole neighbor can see it like, no, we're not going to turn the lights off. And they wanted to search my truck. They wanted to search the the pickup truck. They started asking me like, where did you get that? And I'm like, you can't look at it. They're like, do you have any drugs? I'm like, of course, but they're in the house and you can't have them. If you want to see those, you're going to have to get a search warrant. I mean, I went through all this stuff with them. I was kind of snarky. I was pretty snarky with them. And one of them just looked at me and said, you know, we're on to you. We're on to you. And then they left. And uh, that was a moment for me. I thought I was going to have a panic attack right there. And uh, so I started cleaning things up and uh, actually called my wife, who I, you know, had, I told you had moved out on me. And we had a conversation. I said, look, I'm getting ready to go to Oregon. <laughs> my dad had moved to Oregon. 
I'm going to move to Oregon. I'm going to go find us a place. You want to start over up there? And she agreed, strangely. So I packed up my truck with a bunch of stuff. I went to Oregon. Okay. And uh, rented a place and then came back to uh, the Bay Area in order to pack up and never come back again. And that's when I was arrested. Okay. So I I went back to my place with the intention of packing things up over the course of the next couple of weeks. And I was pulling out of my house, driving to the grocery store because I needed an odd wall of carrot juice. (laughs) And uh, they pulled me over and they arrested me for four counts of possession of stolen property on April 8th of 2005. Okay. Couple of comments. One, the Odwalla orange juice is such a Northern California, like meth addict thing. Like, of course we're like doing meth and stealing, but you're going to drink some orange juice. Like that's hilarious. Did I say orange juice? Did I yes. say orange juice? I mean, okay, carrot, I juice. carrot carrot juice. Okay. Yeah. Carrot juice. That's what makes it different. Cause it's carrot juice. Do you know what I mean? Like, like there's also like that Northern California, like hippie side. That's like, we should also, you know, drink some greens while we're smoking our meth. I was a meth, you know? head, but I, was a meth head, but I liked carrot juice. That's like hilarious <laughs> to me. And then, did you struggle at all with thinking, I don't turn this in? Did it cross your mind to not turn it in? Or it was just a matter of how do I do this? Yeah, there was a line that got crossed with that. For sure. Okay. You did something different. You walked into the house to take it when you normally wouldn't have. Do you think that there was some sort of like karmic or spiritual pull that got you into the house to get it because the reason was bigger than you and it was to stop this guy? That's a deep question right there. I know. I leave it in the same territory as the ninja. Okay. You don't know. Okay. Uh, I don't know. I'm not a God-fearing man. I don't tend to believe that the universe operates that way. So part of me is crazy things happen in the world. Yes. Okay. And I happen to be present for one of them. Okay. All right. So you think you could, it's chance you happen to do that. At the same time, but I'll admit that it is, uh, if I were to pick any moment in my life that would indicate the presence of being pushed in a direction for some higher purpose, this would be one of them. That would be one of them. Uh, Because, because, uh, you know, if I had smoked another cigarette, if I hadn't smoked a cigarette, if I'd hit a stoplight, if I hadn't hit a stoplight, I could only have done this by walking through that property at that exact moment in time. It had to be the moment when he walked out of the house into the next house, whatever that three or four minute window, it had to be then it had to be someone willing to go into the house and take the thing. It had to be someone willing to turn it in afterwards. I get that. Like it is a wild, serendipitous, inexplicable yeah. moment. And I know a lot of people will say uh, it was a God moment. And that may be true. That's not the worldview I adopt, but okay. I'm okay with it being just a massive mystery. Yeah. I don't need an explanation for it because it is. And it's honestly, as we know, like I wouldn't be sitting here today right. if that hadn't happened. Right. If it hadn't happened. Which we'll get to, of course. But Yeah, which we'll get to. So how did they catch you when they pulled you over in April? How had they caught you? Do you know? Was it Prince or something you stole or then sold? Yeah, I I had stolen, if I remember right, I don't even know if they make these anymore, but a radar detector. People used to put those things in their dashes to tell them when a cop was nearby. I had stolen one, I remember, from a Viper. Uh, (laughs) I just remember the car. And I sold it to someone. And most people didn't, at the time... I know we do this a lot today, but most people at the time didn't go onto the internet and enter serial numbers in to register. Right. It's yeah. just not what people did in 2005 yeah. very much. Mm-hmm. You might have a card in your house for something you bought that has the serial number, but you weren't really going online to register things right. that much. But I didn't take into account the fact that even if only 99% of people didn't do it, there was still going to be one. Right. <laughs> and so I sold a radar detector on eBay that someone bought 
and that person went to do like a software update on it and it had been come back stolen. Oh shit. Okay. All right. So they come back stolen and that led to the local police department getting a search warrant for on my, of my person, search warrant of my car, search warrant of my house. And so they pulled me over that night. The, what's interesting, if you want to get into weird legal stuff, is the fact that they, all those search warrants had expired when I got arrested. So, and so they picked me up. Okay. They were scrambling. They were scrambling. Oh shit! When, they, when they, they arrested me and then realized that they had been ten day bent, they had been ten day warrants or something. I didn't know this at the time. I only learned this later when I was in the county jail trying to file a motion to have all evidence against me thrown out because we realized that they had acted upon an expired search warrant. So, anyways, they arrested me thinking they had a search and an arrest warrant. Okay. And then because they were kind of scrambling, they found four things in my truck that they thought were stolen. And then charged me with possession of stolen property for those things. And in the meantime, they went to a judge and got new search warrants. So they kept me in a cell downtown long enough to get the new search warrants and then booked me after the new search warrants had been signed. Ah. And in the meantime, that's when we had the off the record conversation with the cops that knew me because I'd been on parole in that town before. Okay. And the off the record conversation looks like this. So you, you tell them, how does this unfold? Well, because I'd been on parole in that time, in that town, and because I was a good parolee, right? Like you recall, I came home, I was doing well, I was going to college, I had a good job, I got off parole. But the cops would come by my house when I was on parole and periodically just come in and search it, search okay. the bedroom, search the house, pull me over, search it just to make sure I wasn't doing anything. It just so happened that whenever there'd be like a burglary in the neighborhood, they would also stop by my house just to see if I had any of the stuff that was stolen in the burglary, right? Because I was a convicted burglar, right? Yeah. But over time, they came to recognize like, no, he got his he got his act together. And so sometimes they, it was just routine. They'd come by like, yeah, we're coming by because we have to. How are you doing today? You know, it was like it was amiable conversation. It was fine. Yeah. And one of those officers is the one that pulled me over and arrested me that night. Okay. And, you know, as he was putting me or after he put me in the back of the cop car, he said something along the lines of, what happened? You were doing so good. Now what? You know, and I was immediately overwhelmed, overcome with shame. And I knew this person. And I said something along the lines of, well, at least I gave you Aiken. It was something like that. Okay. You know, which is kind of like, you're a piece of crap, but at least I gave you Aiken. Yeah. It was, it was essentially how I responded to that. Okay. I don't think I thought about it so much at that moment, but in hindsight, I'm thinking that probably set off like a very strange cascade of conversations amongst the, the police. Right. Like I said, I was taken, rather than taken to the jail, I was taken to the substation, the small station locally. And then held in a holding cell there while we waited for detectives to come by. And essentially, I ended up having this conversation where they're like, this is off the record. We just want to know what was in the safe, how the safe got acquired. We just want to know. And so I didn't tell them that I stole the safe, but I told them that I definitely opened it. And I told them that okay. I definitely turned the stuff in and I told them what was in the safe. Okay. And they did keep that off the record. They didn't make that a part of public record. Okay. What did you do with the gun that was in there? I don't even remember what happened to it. I think I had given it to someone after the police had come by that night, okay, a few weeks before okay. I got arrested. I think right. I had given it to someone to get it out of the house because I didn't want to be a felon yeah. in possession of a firearm if they came over. I don't know what ended up happening to it, though. Okay. All right. Okay. Just curious. So were they like, when you said, I gave you Aiken, which is the guy's name that was on the flash drive, the guy, the you know predator, the whatever you want to call yes. it. So were they like... <laughs> Did they seem shocked or were any of them like, hey, dude, thanks? 
or no, were they just very ma- matter of fact, like, okay. I mean, was there any sort of emotional exchange here where they were like, Hey, thanks for doing that. No, no. Okay. There was nothing like that. All right. Okay. Uh, the only thing I remember is just saying this is off the record. Right. Okay. And they, I remember them saying the sergeant said something along the lines of, yeah, we don't want to screw up this case. In hindsight, I don't really know why me saying that would have screwed up their case or right. not being off the record would screw up the case. I'm not entirely sure why. But Right. Right. No, there was no acknowledgement of what I did at that at that point. Okay. Okay. All right. Uh, so then I went so, to jail. I was booked in the county jail and then I bailed out right away. Because okay. I was only booked for four counts of possession of stolen property and even though I knew I would face three strikes for each one of them, a third strike for each one of them, it's not like in the system, I look like I'm facing anything other than possession of stolen property. Okay. Right. So because remember, strikes are something that come up later as they realize your record. It's not something right. that comes up right when you're booked in the county jail. Okay. So I bailed out. And if I remember right, it was $10,000 bail. Okay. That would made, I guess that would have made it 2500 $2, bucks per count of possession of stolen property. Either way, it was a, it was a relatively easy bail to make. I got bailed out. Uh, within like eight or 10 hours or something like that. And during that time, they had done their search warrants, by the way. They had okay. searched my house and taken everything. They had searched my car. They had impounded it. They'd done all that stuff. Okay. But then I had a choice to make. I didn't use meth again ever. After, oh, you didn't? Uh, never again after that arrest. So that's like your sobriety date, April 3rd, 2000? No. No, okay. I didn't use meth. Okay. All right. Okay. <laughs> I didn't use meth. <laughs> okay. All right. And it was probably for good reason because once I came home, the cops followed me everywhere I went. If I go to 7-Eleven, the cop would come in and just hang out at the Slurpee machine. And then I'd go to the grocery store and they just can't park in the parking lot near me. They were just watching me everywhere. Yeah. But I drank and I smoked pot. I had a lot of fear around what was happening because I was going to have a court date. It was going to be on April 22nd. That was when I was going to go uh, get arraigned. And uh, I knew that if I went to that court date, I was going to jail. I mean, I knew it. And there's no way they would let me stay out of jail on $10,000 bail facing life in prison. And so I had an interesting conundrum. I considered running. I had some money. It's so funny what felt like a lot of money back then as, as like a, an actual adult today. Right. It's, yeah. it's like, imagine thinking that you're going to get far running the rest of your life on like $10,000 or right. something. Yeah. That doesn't go far at yeah. all. Like, yeah. For whatever reason, it felt like I could I could make yeah. a run for it. We time. were actually, it my husband and I were listening to your other episode last night on on our way to a meeting, and you said that on the other podcast episode, and you oh, were I like, did? "Yeah, you're like, I mean, I, I thought about running, and my husband immediately was like, "Whoo, what was he? Twenty five? You're not getting far." He said something like that, and I was like, "Well, no, he doesn't run. Obviously, I'm interviewing him tomorrow." But he said the exact same thing. He was like, "It's hard to run, <laughs> you know." <laughs> yeah, it's not going to work. No. And at the same time, I was just, I was just exhausted. Yeah. I was just over it. I was, yeah. I, I was tired of lying. I was tired of stealing. I was just tired of piling on the shame, yeah. you know, because, you know, in the mornings, if you want to say waking up in the morning, because there were days I did wake up in the morning, yeah. right. And I wasn't high yet. There was just so much shame. I just, I would, I would say to myself, I can't do this anymore. And then I'd get high again. And I'd say, I can't do this anymore. And then I get high again. At that point, I was like very suicidal because my, my close friend had killed himself. And for the first time in my life, it had become an option. Yeah, I'd never been exposed to suicide prior to that. And uh, once I saw that somebody had opted for something like that, it re- I realized like, oh, if things get bad, I could do that. Like that's yeah. a possibility. And so I had a lot of that sort of thinking. And uh, in many ways, drugs saved my life. In many ways, the criminal lifestyle saved my life because once I got up and I got loaded and I 
went and did all that stuff the rest of the day. I didn't have to think about how I didn't want to do it anymore for that next stretch of 24, 36 or 72 hours. And then yeah. I'd wake up again and I'd feel that way again. And then drugs would save my life again. So um, I, I was tired of that though. Yeah. I was just tired. And uh, so on the morning of April 22nd, you know, I was, part of me was toying with Brennan still. I didn't know what I was going to do, but I just, I knew what I had to do, but I was also scared to death to do it. So I, yeah. I know a lot of people don't think this is like, it's weird how people don't think smoking pot is getting high again, but uh, high anymore. There's like kind of this attitude. And I think they call it California sober. Yeah. Have you heard of this term? Yeah, California have, yeah. sober is like yeah, smoking yeah. pot, but nothing else. I smoked pot that morning and that's what gave me the courage to go to court. It's just what happened. I, uh, I knew what I had to do, but I was scared to death to do it. So I yeah. got high one last time. And I went to court without a belt and without a wallet and without keys and without jewelry, but with 300 bucks in my pocket. And I went to the courtroom and the district attorney, she said, uh, Your Honor, Mr. Hahn is out on bail, $10,000 bail and four counts of possession of stolen property. He's a three-strike candidate. He's currently facing 100 years to life, 25 years to life for each charge. And we think he is a significant flight risk. We recommend remand, right? Of course, I knew that's what was going to happen. So I just stuck my hands out and... Uh, Bailiff sheriff came over and put handcuffs on me and took me into the jury box. And uh, that's where they do like, I don't know if you've ever done this before, but they do like a checklist. Like what is your, your personal property that you have with you? I've done it in holding, not ever from a courtroom though. Not, other from, do it in the not ever from an arraignment, but from holding. They did it in the courtroom there. And so he just went through the checklist. He's like shirt, pants, shoes, you know, and he's asking me about like the jewelry and the belt and the wallet and the keys. I'm like, yeah, I don't have any of that. Do you have anything? I'm like, yeah, $300 in cash. And he just looked up. I'll never forget. The sheriff looked up at me and he said, do you know that this was going to happen? I said, yeah, I did. He's like, why the fuck did you come here? <laughs> I said, I just don't have it in me anymore. I just don't have it in me anymore. And so that is the last day I got high. Wow. Holy shit. And I just want to emphasize. Okay. And so I just want to emphasize guys, what we're talking about is that 25 years old, he voluntarily, and you had an apartment rented in Oregon. You could have gone. I guess you didn't have the truck anymore, but you had a place, right? And some cash. I got the truck back. Oh, you did. Okay. So there you go. I got the truck back. Fuck. So you said I'm signing up for what is probably 99% a life sentence at 25 years old. I'm going in. So obviously that isn't what ends up happening because here we sit. So remand, they take you to county jail and then what starts to unfold. Also, did anybody go to your arraignment? Was your mom there? Was your wife there? Was anybody there? I think my mom and my mom and my wife were there. Okay. All right. I'm just curious. Okay. And I, I do. Yeah. Cause I remember sitting in the jury box and then just looking over and telling them to go. I just told them to leave. Okay. They didn't need to sit around for, they didn't need to sit around for the rest of this. Right. Yeah. That's such a, that moment gives me pause. Cause I've had that moment with a boyfriend in the box, you know, going, just leave, you know? And you're like, all right, it's just so, you know, I've been on both sides of that, but I remember that so clearly just like, it's like this combination look of like resignation, acceptance, sadness, all in one, you know, like I can see it. And I had something else to do now. There's something yeah. that I had to do and it, it didn't involve them. There's something I was getting ready to have to do that didn't involve them. And it didn't mean like I wouldn't have contact with them or whatever, but like, I think I've said it in other places, it's, it was the end of like one type of pain, but it was the beginning of a whole new type of pain. Right. You know, yeah. It was the end of one type of suffering, but the beginning of a whole world of new, new suffering. Yeah. The, and I knew that I knew what was getting, I was getting ready to start. And like I said, I thought could very well be, that was the rest of my life, you know? Right. Right. So then what, what unfolds from here? What's next? 
let's see, this is for D how, how much detail do you want? Because I, I end up, I know, because I say I end up spending the next seven years of my life in prison and there's got to be a reason it's only seven and not life. Right. So yeah. yeah, I end up facing 16 charges instead of four. So I end up facing 400 years of life Fuck. by the time, by the time they uh, figure out what they want to charge me with and what they want to take me to trial for, because they're not offering me any plea bargains. So you remember I was stealing from really wealthy people. And so the criminal justice system has a tendency to go hard after people who steal from the wealthy. And so there was no indication that I was going to be getting a plea bargain whatsoever. They wanted to take me to trial. My defense was essentially the same defense or same excuse I'd given family when I was out there, that I was buying property from garage sales. I was buying storage units at auction and selling that property on eBay. I didn't know it was stolen though. And I thought that the worst I would get going to trial would be an indication that I did know it was stolen and thus get uh, convicted of possession of stolen property and hope that nobody would want to give me a life sentence for that sort of crime. That's what I was hoping for, which was, yeah, I could get 10, 20 years for possession of stolen property, but they probably wouldn't give me life for that because some attitudes around three strikes were starting to change at that point. So yeah, totally. And so there's a lot of people facing three strikes when I was in the county jail for possession of PCP, possession of methamphetamine, because that's a felony. And they had the same sort of background as I did. So they were getting, they were trying to give them 25 years of life for possession charges. And a lot of those folks were ended up taking really long plea bargains, but they weren't giving, they started to not give the life sentence out for those lesser charges. So that's what I was hoping for. In the meantime, this other guy, the guy who'd been in the the photographs uh, with the child, he was progressing with his case and he was facing, I think, 25 years to life. You guys were in the uh, same jail? No. Oh, okay. Well, yes, we were in the same jail, but not the same housing unit, right? Well, right, because he would have been in protective custody and you would have been in general population. But you were in the same jail? Of course. Did he know it was you? No, I think in the early part, he wouldn't have because everything I had said was off the record. Oh, right. So he he wouldn't have known anything. But remember, like, this is a big jail. So yeah, yeah. Like the protective custody is they have their own building. They're somewhere else. Right. I'm in my own building, the lockdown unit. And, uh, and then I actually, incidentally, the strangest thing for like eight or nine months when I was in the county jail, they misclassified me because they saw that I was originally only charged with possession of stolen property. Without thinking about how much time I was facing, they wouldn't, they put me at the minimum facility. Okay. And so there I was facing the rest of my life in prison in a drug program in the county jail, staring at just a chain link fence. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that was an interesting experience. With a bunch of people who were doing like 60, 90, 120 days acting yeah. like fools, right? Like <laughs> driving me up the wall. Anyways, this other guy is still getting prosecuted for what's in the photos, right? And he is at some point filing a motion to have the evidence, the photographic evidence thrown out because it was stolen. We know it was stolen because he actually called the burglary in. Remember I told you how he saw me steal the safe? He had actually yeah. called the cops the next morning and said, somebody stole my safe. Really? He didn't tell him. Yeah, he told him there was a gun in it and stuff like that. He didn't tell him there were pictures of him sexually abusing a child, but he had called it in. And so everybody knew that this came from a burglary. The the photos came from burglary. And so they were filing a motion suggesting that because the evidence came from the commission of a crime against the defendant, it shouldn't be admitted. Okay. Of course, implying that the police had something to do with it. So one day, the district attorney prosecuting him and my attorney show up in the county jail, they want to do an interview. And essentially what the district attorney explains to me is that there is a possibility that the evidence could get thrown out. But if they can establish a chain of possession of the evidence that doesn't include the police, 
then the evidence is going to stand. Oh, wow. And she said, I know you're that guy. Because even though they never made it a part of public record, everybody was talking to each other ever since I'd had that off the record conversation. And so she knew I was the guy. And so she asked me in this recorded interview, you know, essentially, did I steal the safe? But the prior to that, my attorney had told me, don't admit to stealing the safe. Oh, wow. Because if you admit to stealing the safe, then you can't go to trial because then they have a recording of you admitting to stealing. Remember, I had only been caught with possession of stolen property, but they were charging me with burglary. So I was hoping to be able to go to trial and say, hey, you can go ahead and charge me with possession of stolen property, but you never caught me stealing. Right. Your whole defense was that I didn't steal. So for you to admit that, I didn't that steal it. it ruined so to admit your on the stand. Defense. Yeah, I wouldn't be able to I wouldn't be able to defend myself. And so we did this interview and she asked me kind of directly, did you steal the safe? I'm like, can we move on to the next question? And some I did some sort of skirting around it. And then at some point she shut the recording off with this attorney. She stopped recording. She said, look, here's the scenario. And she kind of laid it out in more detail, the case of uh, how this evidence could get thrown out and what it would mean. And she said, I can't offer you a deal. This isn't an episode of Law and Order. If you're going to say anything, you're going to, you just do it because you want to do it. I can't offer you leniency. It's not my job. I can't do that. And some part of me just realized the gravity of it because it was one of, some part of my mind was like, would I rather it be both of us free or me in prison and him free? Or would I rather be both of us? Like I was just like going through like all these things. And so she started recording again and she asked the question in a different way. She said, did anybody ever possess the safe in the contents of the safe? other than you, between the moment it was stolen and the moment it made it to that postal worker. And I said, no, that was all me. And she said, will you be willing to testify to that in court? And I said, yes. And that was it. And I kind of get emotional and I think about it because uh, it's um, like, the, like I surrendered that day I went into court that first day, right? But this felt, this felt bigger because uh, I really had to let go of the steering wheel at that point. I, my life was not going to be in my hands anymore. Like I had had all of these designs on trying to control it and control the narrative and control what my defense was. And, and in many ways, I was still stuck in all the same lying that I'd been it, stuck in before I went to court because I couldn't tell my family I'd been stealing. I couldn't tell the people I was in jail with that I'd been stealing. I had to keep the narrative for them. I had to keep up the bullshit. I had to keep up the lying for everybody. I couldn't tell my family because then they'd get called as witnesses, right? And so there was something that happened when I was able to like, on the record, basically say, yeah, I've been doing this. And then, then agree to be able to do it. That was liberating. You know, I, um, there's a different type of surrender. So after I was on the record now as being willing to make that testimony, that district attorney went to the local newspaper. So even though she couldn't offer me a deal or anything like that, she did do this for me. She went to the local newspaper, talked to this guy who was a, a reporter there and said, you need to go talk to this dude in the county jail because my boss is trying to give him, me, more time than the dude whose photos I found because I was facing 400 years to life and that dude was facing 25. Wow. So he came to the county jail. We did an interview. And so it ended up being front page back when people actually got newspapers delivered to their driveway in the normal way. It was front page on a Sunday and then it was front page again the following Sunday. And then there was just kind of like a cascading effect from there on out. AP Press or the Associated Press picks it up. You know, my lawyer ends up on like the Glenn Beck show of all places. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever his show was back in 2005. He was on CNN uh, back then, I remember. 
I actually was know that. CNN? He was on CNN at that point, yeah. Okay. One of the few times Glenn Beck said, said something I agree with. I think he yeah. says something along the lines of it, like Matt Hahn should be able to steal something every day for the rest of his life and do less time. <laughs> I want to find guy. that clip. I'm going to find that clip. That's awesome. Please do. I've been trying to find it for years. And the, the okay. closest I found was transcript of it. That's the closest okay. I ever found. Okay. All right. So yeah, there's like a cascade effect. And eventually the prosecutor in my case uh, came to my lawyer and said, we'd like to do a plea bargain. Whoa. Okay. And so there was other media stuff happening. Like one thing that came up once in a local paper, uh, there was an editorial run that was very pragmatic in its tone. And it essentially said, if you don't give leniency to Matt Hahn, to me, what message are you sending to people who commit a crime and discover worse crimes? (laughs) And I wasn't making this argument, but that's the argument that was out there. Like, would you not, do you not want people who commit lesser crimes to if they discover something absolutely heinous to tell somebody about it, of course you want that to happen. And so I don't know if that swayed their opinion or if it was just the fact that so many people were squawking about it, but I ended up taking a plea bargain of 14 years, four months. And that was in uh, the fall of 2006. Okay. Did other guys in jail know what was going on? Mm -hmm. They did. Okay. Yeah. Just all sorts of weird experiences around that too, because um, on one hand, there's people who came up to me, well, not just people, but there's also like, correctional staff, right? So there's like all sorts of weird interactions happening. Like when my story first came out in the paper, I got pulled out of my cell in the middle of the night and taken to an interview with classification. They wanted to know if I wanted to go to protective custody. Oh. And I was like, why? They're like, well, because there's a news articles about you cooperating with the police now. And uh, I said, you know, tough guy, of course I had a little fear about it, but I said, tough guy style. Yeah. If they got a problem with me, they can come see me. <laughs> that's, that's what I said to classification. Because I ain't going, I ain't going to protective custody. And then I had some guys in the county jail saying to me, "Like, what are you going to do when you get upstate, bro?" And they find out that you turned that that evidence in. I'm like, I said the same thing. I'm like, they're going to have to come talk to me. And by talk to me, I meant like I'm just going, I'm rolling the dice. Because honestly, when you get to prison, nobody comes and talks to you about anything if something like right. that's going to go down. Right. <laughs> but it was definitely a concern. It was a concern for me. But in the county jail, folks were all about it. Okay. You know, yeah. like, like people were like, I got all sorts of weird favors, you know, like, yeah. uh, like my sister flew in for like a visit. And then like, for whatever reason, one of the visiting booths broke down and she had flown in from Seattle to come see me. It was right before I was getting ready to go to prison. And she's like crying and everything like that. And she wasn't going to get to see me. But because it was my sister, someone in that visiting room said, you know what? You take my visit. Oh, shit. Okay. And then I find out later that there's like a Norteño in my dorm whose girlfriend gave my sister the visit that I'd had. Oh, right? wow. Okay. He lived in my dorm and his girlfriend knew who I was and knew therefore who my sister was somehow. And I ended okay. up having the visit. So like there's yeah. weird, like yeah. respectful stuff happening as a result. Yeah. And then the weirdest thing ever of all was like when I got my name called to leave the county jail to get on the prison bus, I'm walking out in the whole dorm just stops what they're doing. And it's like a standing ovation. It was the <gasps> strangest. Really? Oh my like gosh. Like it was the strangest thing, like stepping out and watching and having everybody just clap. And then I'm in like the center of like the pods where there's a giant glass wall. And I remember my friend BJ is in the window of the bathroom and he's just up there like looking through the window and the rest of the, I can see everybody else standing. They're just still, still clapping and waving. It was the weirdest, most surreal thing. Oh, wow. Ever. Strange. And then when I got to prison, I tried to hide every, everything about it. Yeah. Yeah. Which worked, right? Nobody ended up finding out, right? Which I know just because I heard you say this somewhere else. I mean, I told some people. Okay. I told okay. some people, but only people I chose, chose to, because I had some weird 
worry that some knucklehead was going to going to book me over it. You know? Well, right, because in prison politics, especially in California, shit's weird, man. And like like they said to you that night, you know, like I could see somebody misconstruing like cooperation is cooperation, you know. But on the other hand, the whole philosophy around like chomos, right, as they say, is I can see people seeing like this is a hero. This is a legitimate hero, right? This guy should be the rep for the whatever. You know what I mean? Like, but you could also see like a few people misconstruing it, looking at it a different way. You just never know how someone in jail is going to act. You never know is my experience. Well, and that's the thing is like, and this there's is the no height of California's prison. Yeah. yeah. There's this no is the height of California's overcrowding too. Yeah. You never and know so what someone's going to do. Two, 3,000 people in a prison and it only takes one knucklehead and prisons have knuckleheads. Oh uh, yeah. Just throw, there's knuckleheads in there. And so like, it only takes one or something as simple as like getting the two names confused if they read the article or something right. like that. Like who right. knows? Like, who knows? Uh, who knows what could happen? And so one of my survival strategies throughout prison was to just really, really not tell a lot about me or where I came from or about my personal story. I had to be present because the politics require that you're present. You can't really just drop out. But I definitely like had, I built up a pretty strong sense of anxiety and fear around vulnerability, around being open and honest with people about telling my story such that it's like, I carry that to my time home. And it took me a number of years, including therapy and stuff, to work through my fear of vulnerability, my fear of exposing myself to people, because uh, it was a survival strategy that worked for for prison, but it wasn't useful when I came home. Right. Well, and I learned too, I don't know if you ever experienced this. You just don't want to say a lot, because I also learned that you don't even want anybody to know what your intellect looks like, what your vocabulary, you know what I mean? Like there's just a lot that you don't want to expose. You know, it's better to stay quiet and not say a lot, which I learned the hard way, you know, and eventually you just, you just don't say much. You know, that was kind of what I learned as well. So you pled to 14 years and went to, you know, the whole, obviously you go to the place before they send you like processing. What's the first one? Reception. Reception. Yes. You go to reception Reception. and then, you know, California prison systems, they're moving you around, right? Place to place to place. and. Were you scared when you first went? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's prison. It's prison, It's right? prison. And I, I had to, this is going to be a different time than I'd done before, right? I was at medium, basically medium security in my first prison term. And this was going to be different, you know? Politics were going to be different. Consequences for screwing up were more severe. You know, like, you know, people were, people got killed on the yards I was at. And over stuff that we would never even really bother to think too much about out here. You know, and so yeah, of course I was scared, but I think you have to have that. You have to, right? Yeah, you have to have that. Well, and learn uh, and learn the lingo and learn the politics and learn how it all works. And my experience was once I like understood that stuff, then you can do what you have to do to survive, and you know, keep your head down. Yeah, and figure out a way to. I mean, I'd already decided uh, when I was in the county jail that I wanted to make this my last time doing this. I decided that prison was going to be transformative for me. And I decided that really fairly early on okay. before I took a plea bargain, before any of that, that I was going to, this was my life. Okay. You know, I think maybe you heard it in somewhere else, but you know, I had a lawyer who was kind of a father figure for me. Uh, he had been my lawyer for my first case and early on in my second case, uh, he came to visit me and he said, Matt, I'm not going to be able to save you from this one. You know, he didn't say, I'm not going to, you're going to get a life sentence. He says, I'm going to do everything I can to keep you from doing life in prison, but you're, 
you're not going home soon, you know? And so what he said was something along the lines of like, this is your home now. And you might be here a decade or two decades, but this is your home now. And you don't get to like think of this as just some blip on the radar and like how you come out at the end of these 10 or 20 years, whatever it is, is dependent upon what you do right now and the choices you make now. And that's entirely up to you. But it starts with recognizing that this is your life. And um, he died two weeks later. He died of a heart attack two weeks later. And so like they stuck in my mind as like the the final words of somebody. And so I, there's something that just really resonated with me for the rest of my prison term, this idea that uh, some people go do time and they try to kill it, right? They're trying to pass the time. They're sleeping, they're getting high, they're watching TV, they're doing whatever. And it just struck me that every moment that I try to kill is actually just killing myself. Because whether no matter where I am, whether I'm in prison or I'm out here, this is my life. This is all yeah. I've got. And uh, so I tried to make the most of my time in prison despite despite where I was, you know, like seven years would be an enormous amount of stretch of my life to just try to kill. Yeah. Right. So at the time it was going to be nine, but I ended up finding a way to make it earlier, but like, that's a long time Yeah. to just figure out a way to like put a gap in your resume. Of yeah. life. You know, like you don't want that, you know, totally. like what can you do to make the most of that? And so I kind of set out to do that. I've never heard anybody put it that way, but you're so right. I mean, it, it's your life. No matter where it's playing out, it is your life. And what do you want to do with those moments and the time that you have? What did you do? How did you make that a transformative time? How did you spend your time? Well, like I said, it started in the county jail. So, I mean, I started working the 12 steps. So two things happened simultaneously. I decided I was suffering enough to do something about it. <laughs> Okay. Right. Remember I had said, yeah. <laughs> uh, I had been in that county, I had been in that college course and there was uh, the Buddhist stuff and I filed it away as like, when I'm suffering, this is a good thing to try out. And so I did two things. I started digging into Buddhism and meditation on one hand. And then I also asked my soon to be ex-wife whether she would find me uh, someone willing to sponsor me at the 12 steps. Okay. My thinking with working the 12 steps was simply that things can't get any worse than they are currently. So the worst thing that could happen is not a damn thing, right? That's the only reason I did the 12 steps. It's like nothing could get worse. So let's just roll the dice and hope they get better. Yeah. So yeah, I started working the steps with a sponsor through the mail, through someone who I just, I met then. I didn't know this person from before, but uh, through the mail, through like phone calls and through visits. And I started working the steps with him and I did my four step in in visiting uh, in the county jail. And that four step came because, uh, you know, I was, I had a lot of shame. I had a lot of regret. I had a lot of like, is this the end of my life sort of thinking? And I would lay in my cell at night with the red light that was on in the cell and stare at the ceiling. I couldn't sleep, you know, and I just had so many cycling thoughts. And at some point, my sponsor told me, he's like, have you considered writing down all the bullshit that's keeping you awake at night? And uh, that's basically what I did. So I had this I started writing down the nonsense that was keeping me awake at night. And one day I just had enough that I thought I had an inventory. I had it out. You're not allowed to bring anything with you into visiting. So I took okay. my four step and I crumpled it up into a ball and I shoved it in my underwear <laughs> next to my junk. And because uh, they'll never touch that thing when they do the pat down. Right. So, uh, so I went into visiting with underwear full of fourth step and then I did my four step. But the thing is, is there's still a phone call things, you know? And so I did most of the phone call, but then the other stuff I actually, I just held up to the glass. Oh, right. Because they're listening to you. Yeah. The recorded call. So like I didn't, so my four stuff was monitored, okay. uh, but uh, <laughs> the stuff relating to my case and everything like that, I, I just held it up to the glass. 
Okay. And did the guy and get up and read it? My sponsor, he just read it through the glass. Okay. The parts, oh, the parts wow. that I didn't want to say over the recording. And strangely, there's a lot of things that coincided when that happened because I also stopped having those sleepless nights. I stopped having those sleepless nights like that after um, I did that fifth step. But I also got my plea bargain, the, the notion that I was going to get a plea bargain all around the same time. So sometimes I say like, you know, my sleepless nights, you know, like that burden was lifted when I did my fifth step, but I also got the plea bargain offer around the same time. But anyways, it all happened around the same time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I started doing 12 step work there. I sponsored, I think I actually started sponsoring a guy there in the county jail. I started a meeting in the county jail. Oh, wow. Uh, And then I went on to prison and then all sorts of 12 step available when I got to Folsom State Prison, lots of meetings. I started to meet lots of people. I also found meditation groups. I was able to start meditating in a Buddhist group. I started meditating with like a Catholic centering prayer group. I started doing yoga. That's where I met really like serious sponsees. Okay. Like in the county jail, I, I had like the, I'm kind of interested, bro, but you know. Right. But then in, a, in, in prison, there was people who are like, I, you're the first person I've met who's gone through all 12 steps and I want to, I want to work 12 steps and I want to do all of it. And so I, that's where I actually started having like what I would think of as like serious sponsorship or serious sponsees. And what was your experience with the 12 steps? Like after going through them? Because I, I'm a big fan of the 12 steps. My audience knows that. I think it's free individualized therapy that's available. And when worked with a sponsor, it's such a positive experience. Was that your experience or how did you, what is your feeling around it? I'm not sure you are aware, but I, I got sober in 12 step. I don't actually do 12 step anymore. And it's not because I have um, like a resentment or against anything against 12 step. For me, like I did 12 step because it's what was available and I was desperate enough to make it work, right? right. I was desperate enough to make it work. And so when I got to the parts about uh, turning my will in my life over the care of God, as we understand him, I just ignored it Okay. in the sense of like, I did the step. My sponsor asked me to get on my knees and do a prayer and stuff like that. So I did it Okay. and I didn't believe in God. Okay. That's it. Yeah. Like, I did know that, which is why I wanted to ask. I did know that you didn't do it anymore, but I had a feeling that you would still look back and say, you're glad you did it. You would do it again if you went back in time. Right. Oh, and I think there's invaluable stuff that's in, that's in the, in 12 steps that some other programs need to pick up. But I just interpreted it through the lens that made sense to me. And so when I saw, like, as we understood him, like, that didn't include God in any sense whatsoever, period. That's just uh, when something like higher power didn't include anything like God, right? When I would do stuff like uh, six, seven step where you're asking for shortcomings to be removed, like, I did those completely differently. Now I was worked, my sponsor worked them with me and kind of like the traditional, almost fast, fast track, because as we know, in the AA book, there's one paragraph for six and one paragraph for seven, right? But when I started working those steps with other people, I did them like kind of like a therapy session, you know, like I started to extract, extracted patterns of behavior and patterns of thought and patterns of defects that we had found, defects of character or shortcomings that we had found through the process of reading a fourth step. And then we created, we generated lists of the way that those character uh, faults or whatever exemplify themselves. And then we worked on them individually. Or I had people keep journals throughout the day, like whenever they felt restless, irritable, discontent, or whenever any of these things happened to write down what character fault might be arising at the time. And then we'd look at those. So like I found ways of like actually working with those things rather than just like hope when they go away, which is kind of one of my criticisms with the way that they are structured and the way that they're written in the steps. But all that said, the 12 steps like work wonders for me. I just interpreted them, interpreted them in a, a Buddhist light, in a meditative light, in a non-God 
dependent light. And that's how I did it. But see, I love that. That's one of the reasons, again, why I wanted you to come on because I, you know, from watching your social media, I, I did know that. And so I think it's important to say that you can work them without some faith-based belief in God, which is often what people think, but you can work them, like you just said, through the lens of meditation, Buddhism. So, cause you obviously felt some sort of connection outside of yourself and that's why meditation worked for you, right? I mean, some sort of Zen feeling, how would you describe it? I think at the time, like I was actually, I was pretty heavy and into the idea now we've heard this stuff, it's become more popular today, the idea that opposite of addiction is connection and stuff like that. I'm sure you've heard that. I was actually just pretty uh, pretty solidly in the school that the actual power that existed uh, in any particular 12-step program was the group itself, was the fact that you had other people to share the experience with. And I still feel that way. Like in Buddhism, we take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And the Sangha is the community of people on the path with you that, that push you along the way. And so like one of the refuges, the places we find safety is in community. I still believe that that is one of the biggest power, the, the highest power that we find in a 12-step group. And I know there's people who are in 12 steps who will disagree with me and that's fine. But so like, that's kind of how I interpret it back then in terms of like, what is the higher power? What is the biggest thing that's not me? And to me, that's the group. And in so many ways, that's why the Buddhist path and the 12-step the stuff coincides so much. Because in Buddhism, I'm not sure how familiar you are with it, but the central problem, the central issue is self. It is identity. It is clinging to self and notions of self. And so this idea that self is at the center of all suffering in Buddhism is aligns well with the selfish, self-centered, the stuff we talk about so often in 12-step programs. Now, of course, there are philosophical differences about what's happening with self there, and we don't need to get into that here. But the point is, I could find alignments. Sure. I could find alignments. And so when I got to prayer and meditation, like in the 11th step, I leaned more heavily into the meditation side. Whereas, as we know, a lot of people will lean heavily into the prayer side and ignore the meditation part. Right. right. So I just did the reverse of what everybody else was doing. So I right. thought that was fine, too. Well, it worked you for know? you. So did you do the Buddhist, what is it, Nom Reiko? What's the phrase? Nom Reiko, the main Buddhist That's a different mantra. school of Buddhism. That's oh, it is. School, but yeah, so okay. many different schools. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. But you know what I mean. I think so, but I can't remember it because it's not my practice. So I don't know. Reikyo or something like that. I know it. Okay. I used to actually, I had learned it. I I saw the Tina Turner movie and she's doing it. And I was in LA doing a bunch of Coke at the time when I watched that movie. And I was desperately trying to stop doing cocaine and and couldn't. And I'd be high doing that Buddhist thing, trying to help myself sleep from Coke, just trying to like do a Buddhist meditation high on cocaine, like, please help me stop doing cocaine, like while I was loaded. And so I'm surprised I don't still remember that phrase, actually, because I How'd said that worked out for you <laughs> poorly, very poorly. Well, that was in 2008. and I don't get clean till 2015. So not well, not well. But I did memorize it because I saw Tina Turner doing it. And I was like, well, worked for her, you know, anyways. So but I do want to ask you a little bit more because I find I don't know anything about Buddhism, obviously, because I didn't know there's multiple schools, but I find it very, very interesting. And I think it's very, very cool, like the little bit that I have learned. So we don't have to go super in depth in this because I know that there's a lot to it. But what you just said is really interesting to me. So the main issue is the self. And then you said there are those the three aspects that are the solution, for lack of a better word. One of them is community. What were the other two? So it's Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. So Buddha refers to like both the historical person who brought the teachings 
for lack of okay. a better way of putting it, as well as the the fact that we too can become Buddha-like in the sense that we can find awakening. Now, if you think about the Buddhist teachings, they essentially say there is suffering in life. Suffering is a direct result of craving, right? That's the first two teachings is that there is suffering in life and we suffer because we crave and craving comes in so many different forms, right? It can come for craving for things, for people. It comes often as a craving for something to be permanent. So we experience a state that we like, and then we want the we want that state to continue. We crave its continuance, or we ha- are experiencing a state that we don't like. You know, there's a loud noise in the room. There's people we don't like that are around us, so we crave for them to go away. These are all forms of craving, and so essentially, the teaching is that we spend our entire lives, and this is why it works so well with addiction, is we spend our entire lives chasing pleasure and pushing away pain, and that we suffer as a di- direct result of having craving for and expectation for more pleasure and less pain. And then we spend our whole lives strategizing ways to increase one and not the other. That is the fundamental teaching of the Buddha is we we experience suffering and it's a direct result of craving. What then follows is like, there are ways to eliminate the craving. Ending the craving is possible, which means ending the suffering is possible. And then the fourth noble truth is the fourth part of the teaching, which is here's how. And then he gives you like a whole path for it. So when we take talk about taking these three refuges in the Buddha the Dharma and the Sangha, what we're really talking about is taking refuge in the fact that awakening is possible. He did it. Other people have done it. We can do it. We can end the suffering caused by craving. Taking refuge in the Dharma, which is the other word for his teachings. So essentially, there's a person who's done it before. There's a path to do it. And then the third is the Sangha or the community, which is the group of people we're doing it with. So we're essentially finding safety in the fact that there's been an example. There is a way to do it. It's been laid out for us and there's people to do it with. That's kind of like what I meant by those three refuges. And uh, in many ways, the program I work now, which is Recovery Dharma, is structured around those three, three refuges. Okay. So that's what I want to talk about. So you, you're in prison, you end up doing, you volunteer for fire camp, which gets you out sooner, right? Basically. And I know there's obviously a lot here, but a lot of my audience has been incarcerated, this kind of stuff that, you know, we all kind of know, you know, he got 14 years, went to fire camp in California, got out a little earlier. You don't use while you're in there, right? And you start, you know, you start studying these various, you know, like you said, using your time to get better, right? This is going to be the last time that you're there. So when you parole, where do you go? I come back to the Bay Area, San Jose. I parole to a friend's house. What year was that? Uh, 2012. Okay. All right. It's 2012. I paroled to a friend's house in San Jose because I didn't want to parole to the same town I left because after I'd been sent to prison, that same sergeant, by the way, that had interviewed me or that had, he had said, we're waiting for him. Oh, sh- they, okay. They didn't think, they didn't think that I should have gotten leniency. So I did not want to, I did not want to go back to the town I came from. So I paroled to my friend's house in San Jose. Um, and then eventually, uh, fortunate enough to have family help me get a relatively cheap apartment. And I started going back, I went back to junior college and then uh, while I was on parole and I got accepted into UCLA, UC Berkeley, all these other schools because I had been doing college while I was in prison. So I applied to all those colleges during my last year in prison. I didn't tell them I was in prison, but I applied to all of them. And then I got into all of them when I came home. So I started at UC Berkeley about six months after coming home from prison. I majored in anthropology, specific in archaeology. So I started digging up dead people for fun. And then I graduated in December of 2013. I'm, I'm putting a lot of things, I'm cramping a lot of things together, but I met, I started doing 12 step when I came home. Okay. I met some people I used to use with okay. before I'd gone to prison and they were now sober. And so one of those people introduced me to 
a woman who she knew from the program. And then neither of us wanted to meet each other because like I was interested in like doing like that post prison dating thing. And she was done dating parolees. <laughs> so <laughs> neither, neither of us wanted to meet each other. So this friend of mine like forced us into the same room at the same time at the same meeting. And then uh, the rest is history. She and I are now married. So I did meet my, my future wife who was also in recovery within two months of coming home from prison. So obviously you got divorced from the first one while you were in there? Yeah, that happened sometime after okay. I'd gone to prison the second okay. time, uh, okay. like All 2007 right. or 2008, something like that. Okay. Okay. No, I'm, I'm not married to two people. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. But I wanted to include that because I knew that yeah, part. Yeah. But, you know, yeah. I wanted to finish her storyline. So when, how did you get into UC Berkeley and UCLA? Was it transcripts from high school or from when you'd gone to junior no, college? That was a long time. Some of the junior college and the college I did while I was in prison. Oh, all right. Oh, okay. Okay. So you were so going I had enough for tra- I had enough for transfer credits after doing the college in prison. Okay. Um, I just had to do one class at the junior college when I came home. I okay. had to take one class with a physical lab Okay. before making the transfer. But I did that in that spring quarter right after coming home from prison. Okay. And then anthropology, huh? But now you are... So after you graduated, then how do you get into your current work? Oh, because I'm a felon. And after I graduated, nobody wanted to hire me. Right. This is nobody, the important part. <laughs> nobody, nobody wanted to hire me, even though I graduated with a 4.0 and even though I, it's, it, wasn't, it wasn't going well. And um, when I was in the county jail, a local chapter of the IBW, that's the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, it's electricians union. They came into the county jail and gave a presentation about union apprenticeship, five years it takes to get trained, the, the requirements for getting in how much money you make, what the benefits are like, all the benefits of union membership. And they said something that just I remembered for a really long time. And they said, we don't care what your past is so long as it stays there. And so after having come home from prison and after having gotten off parole and after having graduated from college and I was having a hard time finding work, I remembered that whole thing of like, we don't care about your past. Whereas here I was having to explain myself every time, everywhere I went, as if it was something I had done recently. So I just set my eyes on, you know what, I, I want to go where, somewhere where I don't have to explain myself anymore. Yeah. And so I started, I found a job with a non-union electrical contractor and started working there as I applied to all the, uh, the local unions and eventually got into an apprenticeship program and a five-year apprenticeship program. And that IBW, they fulfilled their promise to me. They didn't care where I came from, gave me five years of training. They set me up for a great career. Um, I make a great wage. I have great benefits. I cover so much of the stuff in terms of benefits for my wife and I. They don't care about my past. And the only thing that they care about is, you know, the quality of my work, my consistency, the attitude I bring to the job, that sort of thing. Everything that you should care for in, a, uh, in, someone, you, in someone you work with. And so, yeah, I try to share that, share that message with other people and help them understand that union trade union is a way to go like especially if you have a past like this especially if you want to go a play go a place where if we if we come from rough places right and there's there's something it's going to sound weird to people and but there's something about working in the trades that kind of reminds me of the better parts of prison totally yeah, yeah what i mean by the better parts of prison is like just kind of like the calling it like it is like josh and each other having a good time talking trash you know, like not walking on eggshells all the time because someone might get their feelings hurt and stuff like that. There's just something that's kind of fun about about working in the trades that that just doesn't. I don't know. I love it. You know, I love I love working for the trade in the trades, and I love the the fact that I make a great wage in a very very expensive Bay Area. I love the fact that the the folks take care of each other in ways I don't see with other employers. I love the freedom I have 
in the sense that like I can take off for a month vacation, two month vacation. I can do what I want and I will have work when I get back because unionism works a little bit different than when you work for a, a contractor that doesn't have a that doesn't have a union, a union bargaining agreement and whatnot. And so there's a lot of freedom in uh, working in the union too, which is of course as someone who's been to prison, I like freedom just a little bit, you know. So yeah, I spread that message a lot on, on TikTok and, and social media and other places and try to get other people in because I think uh, you know I think unionism is making a comeback in America and it is a way that we build the middle class. But this isn't a political show, so we can uh, we can leave it at that. But I, I do want to just make sure people understand that folks with our backgrounds there there is great opportunity in taking up a union apprenticeship, especially when you consider the fact that you get the equivalent of like a five year degree without having any debt when you're done with it and being able to buy a home when you're not even done with it because you get paid the entire time you're going to school and you end it without debt, which is, there's not many places you can get that. No, it's amazing. And that's why I, that's one of the main reasons I wanted to have you on so that you could say what you just said. And is that available just in California or is that how it works nationwide? I mean, are there unions in every state that you could get dialed sure. in with, with a background? Okay. Yeah. You, you're going to have to talk to the different unions, find out what they're, I can't speak for every union and every trade in every local. I can only speak for the ones here in the Bay Area that I'm more familiar with, but I don't see why uh, you wouldn't have similar experiences in uh, in other parts of the country. Yeah. <laughs> There's a joke sometimes that like in order to get in, you have to have a felony, a divorce, and a DUI. I mean, right. that's just a joke. Yeah. <laughs> like, so I don't know if that's actually true yeah. in the sense of like every union is that amenable to a background, but I can say these are the trades. And if, uh, if we didn't allow people with backgrounds in, we'd have a hard time manning some of our work. Let's put it that way. <laughs> So it's like that here too, in Southern California, in San Diego. Yeah, I know that. Over. This is a random question, but so my husband got his journeyman card at the AGC. Is that, and I think that that's the school that he went to. And now he works for ABC, which is like a different school. Sound familiar to you or no? He's not union. No, no, no. I don't no. think that. No. So yeah, I, I'm not familiar with any of those oh, okay. uh, in the sense that I think I've heard ABC is a non-union kind of training program, but we do our own training. Oh, so okay, okay. I get this question a lot on TikTok. Like, if I just went to electrical school, can I come join? No. You come join, you'll come to our electrical school. Right, okay. We have our own apprenticeship. We train uh, We train people in the way that we want them to do the work. So yeah. that sounds like some, yeah, that sounds like a, the, the non-union side yeah, of the training. Yeah, it is. ABC is a non-union. They do like the HVAC, electrical, and he's writing the carpentry program actually for San Diego because they didn't have one. But yeah, similar. So You should bring him over to the union side. <laughs> he, uh, we've talked about it. I mean, obviously he's heard the pitches, you know, at different job sites and everything, you know? So what does your recovery look like today? Like what does that side of your life look like? It's basically, I mean, it's basically Buddhism. Okay. That's essentially what it is. So I, I guess I should say that like I did do 12 step when I came home, I continued to do 12 step when I came home. I still have a relationship with my sponsor. I'm not going to like end a relationship just because I started to transition away from 12 step. But, you know, uh, part of the the thing I was doing while I was in prison was like I was doing kind of the Buddhism over there. But because of some of the God heavy language that I found in 12 step, I didn't talk a, a ton about Buddhism, like at a 12 step meeting. Right. I didn't talk about some of it was just I don't want to rub people the wrong way. If I go like I don't actually believe in God, I don't need to hear what you think about that. Right. And so there's a certain element of like I was compartmentalizing just a bit. Does that make sense? I kind of had my spiritual practice that I was doing over here and I had my, my recovery and my 12 step. And so there was like some translating and compartmentalizing that was happening. I would translate 12 step language into Buddhist language in a way. 
And then I would kind of, they were kind of in separate places while I was in prison. And then when I came home, that compartmentalization became even a little bit stronger because believe it or not, the meetings in prison are far more amenable. The folks in meetings in prison are far more amenable to saying, yeah, I don't believe in God at meeting level than they are when you come home to the streets. There's always somebody who's got something to say. So there's a little bit more compartmentalization, but it was fine. And then someone wrote a book that basically designed a recovery program that was Buddhist and mindfulness based. And so I started doing that. And I started a meeting, my my wife and I started a meeting on uh, Sunday nights that is this mindfulness and Buddhist space that used that program of recovery. And that was refuge recovery at the time. It is now a recovery dharma. And there was a whole thing that happened that we don't need to get into and why one kind of fell apart. And there's a split. Let's put it this way. It's, let's just think of it this way. It's kind of like uh, the programs. We know 12-step programs split off for various right. reasons. Right. There was, a, okay. there, was a, there was a split in the refuge recovery program. And okay. um, I went the direction of recovery dharma. Okay. But the group that we started on Sunday night remains the same. And I slowly, in the beginning, I was doing 12-step and kind of the Buddhist recovery. And then as I took on service positions, as I became involved in kind of establishing the Buddhist-based recovery, the refuge recovery, and then the recovery dharma, it's just where I put all my energy, right? I was putting all my energy there because I wasn't having to translate or compartmentalize anymore. I was being able to go to a meeting with other people with addictive behaviors and substance issues and things like that. and talk in Buddhist terms and talk without God terms and practice meditation. It was all happening in the same space. And so for me, uh, it was just like kind of the natural movement. And in the beginning, I even had my own worries. I'm like, you know, we've all heard the stories about people leaving a meeting and they relapse. And I realized I wasn't really leaving meetings. I wasn't even leaving the recovery community. I was just finding a place and really helping build a place that was more in alignment with the way I did my recovery. And so that's what I still do. It's a, we have Sunday nights. I only go to one meeting a week, essentially, but I also go to Buddhist, other Buddhist stuff throughout the week because that feeds me. And so there's a, I mean, I'm a part of a, a community called the Boundless Freedom Project, which is a nonprofit organization that brings both Buddhist services and secular mindfulness teachings into prisons in California. And it's the descendant of the original Buddhist group I sat with when I was at Folsom State Prison. So I'm part of, I'm part of that group. And so I meet with them. And we have an online sangha. Um, I'm leading like a workshop with them uh, for them. And essentially uh, also incidentally with the first teacher I sat with when I was in Folsom State Prison, we're teaching a workshop together like next weekend. So oh, there's like, so I'm really cool. involved in that community. Yeah, super full circle stuff. It's awesome. And that's part of my recovery too, because it's my spiritual path. And for me, like Buddhism, as I've talked about when in terms of craving and whatnot, lends itself to uh, recovery so well. I think one of the bigger differences with the Buddhist based recovery and the recovery Dharma in general, relative to, to 12 step stuff is that we don't f- hyper focus on a particular addiction, right? So you can come to a recovery Dharma meeting. If you are a gambling addict, if you're a sex addict, if you're a food addict, if you are a heroin addict an alcoholic, we've had people who are addicted to vindictive thinking and planning out and plotting like how to harm people. And like, that was like, that was the thing that that bother them. So it's a, it's a all addiction welcome sort of group. And I think what's useful about that for folks who start to get into long-term recovery is that it's useful for people who are still dealing with damage control, right? Of like not using heroin, not using alcohol, not using whatever, but it's also remains useful for people who are, have been sober 15 years or 18 years. And now I realize that I'm addicted to video games or I'm addicted to my cell phone or I'm addicted to it's like the, the same process works with all of them. And that's not a separate meeting. You don't need to go to the Al-Anon group or you don't need to go to the other group because you're doing something 
that's operates in a similar way as your original addiction. We can work on it in the same space. And so I like that because it, in a way, addresses the six, seven step stuff. Yeah. I love that because those things start to come up over time. I have almost nine years and there's a lot of stuff still like patterns, addiction, like you mentioned the phone, like I'm super addicted to the phone and social media and, you know, I'm not struggling with not shooting heroin anymore, but there's still, you know, patterns of addiction that cause, like you said, suffering, you know, in various, in various forms. So if somebody wanted to find a Buddhist meaning, Dharma recovery, or re- where, where would you recommend starting? Is I think there a you book? Just is go, there something online? There is a book called Recovery Dharma, and that's D-H-A-R-M-A. You can also go to recoverydharma.org, okay. and you can find meanings there, and there's meaning listings and, and whatnot. If you get the Recovery Dharma book, incidentally, we just came out with a second edition. So I was actually, I actually helped write the basic text when Recovery Dharma started in 2019. But because of the nature of the split, it was kind of put together very fast. And so we wrote it, kind of donated it, right? So you don't have to buy it. You can get it for free if you want to download it as PDF and stuff. But if you want a hard copy, obviously you have to buy it. But we kind of wrote it with like this uh, intent to rewrite it or this intent to have okay. a second edition because it was written so fast. So we did have a second edition come out over the summer. Oh, cool. And it followed the similar trajectory as like the, the big book in AA, whereas the first book in AA, remember, was just the basically the teachings, right? Oh, and I didn't it, even know that actually. I didn't know there was and, an original one. And then, and then later on, it, they started including personal stories. So the second edition of the Recovery Dharma book, um, also we included personal stories, and I was fortunate enough to have mine included in there as well. So that was pretty cool. So find the Recovery Dharma book, and then you can obviously go to the website and find our meetings there. There's other places if you're just interested in this kind of quasi meditative mindfulness Buddhist related recovery. If it's just something that speaks to you, and just I would I suggest looking up the Buddhist Recovery Network as well. As another resource, because it might not be a recovery Dharma meeting, but there might be uh, meditation groups for people in recovery and you will be able to find stuff like that there too. Okay. Oh, that's so cool. Okay. And then where can people find you? Cause there's way more information along these lines. If you, if you guys are interested, where can everybody connect with you? Han scratch, wherever it is. Okay. TikTok, which is H- Twitter, H A H N scratch. Right. Yeah. TikTok, Twitter, Instagram threads. I don't know, all of the places. All the things. Except not Snapchat. Threads, Snapchat. I don't do Snapchat. Threads. No, I don't do Snapchat either. Yeah. Threads, I don't know. I started and I'm like, I can't. There's so many social media platforms. You know what I mean? I'm like, it's hard to keep up with all of them, you know? I miss the old Twitter though. Yeah, yeah. No, that was that's that's a very weird thing. But well, I cannot thank you enough for your time. I knew that this would be an awesome conversation. Thank you so much for, you know, for following up with me and coming on and you know, being so generous with your time. I'm glad we got to speak for so long. I hope that that's okay. It's going to be a long episode. <laughs> it's going to be a long episode. Well, I'll break it down in two. I know exactly where I'm going to split it. I'm going to split it right when you open the safe. <gasps> okay, do it. <laughs> that's that's going to be my part one. And then we'll go into part two because there's a lot of really good information here. So I just thank you so, so much for coming on. And yeah, I just really appreciate it. Is there any like last thing that you would want to leave anybody with? No? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I love the idea of craving equal suffering. I think that that's something that will resonate with everybody, you know, and then the path out of that, whether it's 12 step, whether it's what you suggested, you know, that's like the human condition, right? Which is what they say in Buddhism, the human condition is suffering. And then how do we handle that? 
we can do another one of these one day if you want, and we'll just talk about that stuff. If that's what, and if we I don't have, love to do then that. it doesn't have to have the, the the long story part to begin. Oh, sorry. Yeah, we can just do. I would actually really like to do that, and I know that my audience would really like to listen to that too. We can delve a little bit more into that. What does your daily meditation practice look like? And then we're done. It depends. Uh, when I'm okay. going to work, it's it's in the car in the morning, quietly. Okay. Uh, and then on weekends, it's either in my group or in a bedroom somewhere. Okay. I mean, if you want specifics about what types of meditation objects I'm picking up, that's a whole different conversation. But yeah, mindfulness of breath, mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of feeling tones, mindfulness of mind. Uh, okay. Practicing loving kindness, cultivating loving kindness and compassion, cultivating generosity and appreciative joy, cultivating equanimity. I mean, just throwing it all out there for you. You want to see what's in the basket, okay. but yeah. We have to do another one. Yeah, it's we'll a totally, do another one. It's a totally different, a, different conversation. Yeah. yeah. But I would love that. I would love to do an episode where we do like the more specifics because this does really resonate with me, all of it. You know, like you said that when you first came across it, it felt truthful. It does to me to all the year, you know, because you come across Buddhist things on either, even if it's like social media or like I was joking about the movie, but I really did kind of take it in. And I think I read a little bit about it and it has always spoken to me as well, you know, so I would, I would love to do an episode about it. All right, we'll do it. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. I was glad to be here. I'm glad to be here. 